added time is supported by Fitbit. With Amazon Alexa built in, your personalised sleep score and a 5 plus day battery life. Fitbit Versa 2 takes smartwatches to the next level. I love a Tuesday podcast, Pat. Why do you love a Tuesday podcast? <laughs> because it's not a Monday podcast, <laughs> which is the main reason. A day of the week down already, isn't day, it? A day down. Uh, and yet, the memory I will take from the weekend uh, isn't anything to do with the club championships. It isn't anything to do with the rugby, although I remember the England-New uh, Zealand game. Uh, over the weekend, uh, Tiger Woods won his 82nd PGA Tour tournament. Is this really the memory you take from the sporting weekend? It's what I can remember now. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> 82 wins is insane. You know what, well, you know when when something happens slowly, uh, you don't really get it until it actually happens. But this ties Sam Snead's record of PGA Tour wins. Mm. And to put it in context, it, the number itself sounds, you know, who who is any who am I to tell anybody that eighty two PGA Tour wins is is anything special? So it equals the record of Sam Snead. Um, the next number of players currently playing uh, is Mickelson's. And what's that? Would you be able to have a guess? Because you wouldn't know this actually. Okay, Phil Mickelson. Um, Thirty four. Forty four. Okay. And uh, Rory, Rory McIlroy had a great line over the weekend. He says, uh, he says to win 50, t- even 50 times on the PGA Tour would be an unbelievable achievement. Even Phil's number is 44. But to get to 82 is kind of mad. He says, I feel, this is Rory, I feel like I have had a decent career. If I win six times a year for the next 10 years, I still won't get there. Oh, my God. How many does, does Rory have? McIlroy has 17 PGA Tour wins. Mm. It is pretty jaw-dropping. And actually, I, I did read somebody point out over the weekend even that Sam Snead, also managing to put up 82, sort of did it in an era that wasn't really competitive. Oh, my God. Like, there, there was, you know, tournaments where, like, Sam Snead was beating, you know, decent handicappers the odd, the odd time in, the, right. in these tour events. Like, it wasn't, the, it wasn't the global... Like, this tournament was in Japan. It wasn't the, the global... Like, the best players in the world are playing in these tournaments. And Tiger was being... <laughs> there's some mad stuff. People uh, who are interested in this stuff, there's a, a great uh, guy to follow on Twitter called Justin Ray, who is a golf statistician, who, <laughs> like... <laughs> some of the deep dives that he does are, are just, like you know, get a life, man. But, uh, but okay, so across Tiger Woods' 82 PGA Tour wins, fellow players in those events have been born from a span of 1922 to 1999. <laughs> 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 so, so a guy he beat uh, uh, called Devin Bling was born in 1999 and uh, in his first tournament, <laughs> Doug Ford was playing in it, who was born in 1922. So he's beat 77 years worth of players. <laughs> that, you, you can you can tell him to get a life you want, but that's a damn good stat. That's a damn good stat. Dustin Johnson is the only player currently under the age of forty who has twenty or more PGA Tour wins, right? So at the pace that Johnson has set for his career, twenty-one starts per se- per season, a win percentage of seven point seven percent, he is on pace to catch Tiger Woods. His catch is eighty-two in the year twenty fifty-six. What age would that make Johnson then? That would make Johnson 72 when he does that. 
<laughs> Tiger is 44. Uh, I'm going to give two more stats just uh, just to bore people a little more, all right? Uh, he has... Right, so this is... His 82 wins are all since the middle of the 1996 season, during the middle of which he turned pro. Since the beginning of 1996, the players with the second most and third most wins are Mickelson and Vijay Singh. And they have won a combined 70 times. Wow. And Tiger has won 82 since since then. VJ Singer would have been a lot, spent You'd a long g- time coming, <laughs> guessing for his name. And the last one, uh, to bring it all back to the start and, and to Sam Snead, he ties with Sam Snead for first place in the PGA's Tour all-time list. He has made that mark in 66 fewer career starts than Sam Snead. Wow. That is pretty jaw-dropping, all right? It is incredible what he has done. And, like, he's won three times in the last 13 months, which nobody thought that he would ever do, and and, and is amazing. Mm. But what those stats tell me, yet again, they tell me what an amazing golfer, sportsman, all-consuming taker of life he was in the 2000s. Because the vast majority of those stats go back to, to sort of pre Thanksgiving, twenty oh nine. Like uh, that, those are his stats for essentially uh, the late nineties and and up to the two thousands. It's insane. It's, it's really we'll never see anyone like him. It is an insane dominance in a sport that typically is not dominated. Yeah, you can't dominate. That, that's the whole point of it. Is is that a brilliant year for somebody is to win three times. Mm. And he's won 82 since 1996. That's my Tiger Woods. Fair enough. There you go. I got it. I snuck it under the radar. I still don't like him. <laughs> I know you still don't like him. That's, that's another day's conversation, Pat. Uh, we are going to talk a uh, little football later on. We have Amy Lawrence on from The Athletic. Uh, to talk about Arsenal and Granite Xhaka. Uh, but we're going to start with the rugby. We have Gavin Comiskey in front of us here, looking resplendent, even though he's worrying about his weight after he went to Japan. Uh, but we're going to go over to Japan and talk to Jerry Thorny. How are you, Jerry? Very good, thank you. It's nearly over, Jerry. Don't worry, we're getting there. We're getting there. This time next week, Rodney. This time next week. What day are we? We're Tuesday. Yeah, I'd be still airborne. But anyway, yeah, be on the way home. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the semi-finals are done. The final lineup is uh, in place. Uh, I guess we may as well start with England-New Zealand. What um, what a performance from England. Yeah, stunning performance. Absolutely brilliant. Um, speaking to Brian O'Driscoll and Justin Marshall, they were, like Drico said, it was about the most complete performance he'd ever seen. Uh, Justin Marshall said he'd never seen a team start like that with such unrelenting accuracy and tempo and pace for the first 15, 20 minutes. Um, everything about it was a ta- tactical masterclass, you have to say, by Eddie Jones and John Mitchell and um, the rest of the English coaching tickets. They did an absolute number on the All Blacks at the breakdown. Um, started like a train, as I think it was the ninth time in 14 tests this year. They scored a try in the first 10 minutes. So they really have... Um, learned the art of just exploding into games from the kickoff, scoring a try within barely a minute and a half. Um, and thereafter, just shows you if you get a lead against the All Blacks, the only way you can do it, you've got to get a lead and then force them into mistakes, which I think is as good a defence. I'm trying to think if I've ever seen a better defensive performance, given how good this New Zealand attack is. I think they 
31 defenders beaten, 21 offloads. They tried every trick they could, but it was nearly always in their own half. And uh, about as important a moment in the match as Manu Tulagi's second-minute try was the time he picked up that uh, long skip pass from Bolton Barrett. Thereafter, Tulagi kept racing up on the outside centre channel. Or if it wasn't him, it was Ford or Farrell or whoever. And every time Wonga or Barrett looked up, they saw the threat. It just shows you, if you draw a line to sand, so see the doubt. They forced them back into side of the heavy traffic, which is, of course, where England want them to be. And they also identified Kieran Reid and Brody Retallick and Sam Whitelock, their main go-to men up the middle, by just flooding that midfield with, that middle of the pitch with Mara Toji and the Kamikaze kids, the Tom Curry and Sam Underhill and the tackles that Underhill made. Just He must be the best, cleanest hitter in the world. And they just knocked and rocked back the All Blacks and forced them to go narrow up the touchline and forced them to offloads and forced them into the need of mail and forced them to kicking the ball away hurriedly. It was just a brilliant, brilliant defensive performance. And in point of fact, England should have won by more than 19-7. They had two tries disallowed, whereas the All Blacks, they handed them a relatively soft try from their own line-outs. Um, and that was the only score the All Blacks got. It was quite incredible. Gavin, like Jerry said there, the, the discipline that England had was extraordinary, especially in the tackle. At no point during the game was there a high tackle. There was no yellow cards given away. There was just all these incredible driving them back tackles by Underhill, Curry, Atoje. It was just an astonishing performance to see New Zealand out-muscled to that degree. Yeah, it was astonishing to see New Zealand out-muscled, but we have seen these exact players doing this for a year now. We saw it in February, right before our eyes, where they got the early try and then shut Ireland down. Makes you feel slightly better about little, some of the hidings they've given bit, us this Especially year. What, what they did, Munster, they wiped them out, Saracens did, but the, what happened to Leinster was very similar. But what was I found so interesting was New Zealand made a mistake that they can never take back is they changed their team to Taylor England, which they've never done before, I think, in their history, the way it was Scott Barrett and their open side. The, the heir to the Richie McCaw throne was sitting on a bench, which is now, we, we, we kind of, we did flag it a little bit before the game, but mm. just when they needed to be competitive at a breakdown, their best person at a breakdown was sitting on the bench because they blinked, you know? Um... And the most dominant club team, people were that like, everyone in New Zealand would have been convinced it was Crusaders, and then that was moulding into into the All Blacks. It's not the most dominant club team in the world, Saracens, and they which they proved it time and time again. The key players in the England team on the weekend, Itoje, like Underhill, Jerry's mentioned them, and Curry, like they were superb. But it, you don't win that game without Itoje. I was watching it again last night because it was. I think it's it's definitely top three, four games I've ever seen in my life, in any sport, in anything. Um, I was watching it again last night. And the lineouts, New Zealand's lineout, their defensive lineout was excellent, and they it was just a fingertip each time that Atoje or Cruz when he came on or Laws just got it back, and they could set up their mall, and they they essentially broke New Zealand with the mall in the second near in the last quarter, and it was that's what it was. It was um, Maro Atoje was I think, and I I I'd really argue the toss with anyone on this now. He became the best player in the world. Hang Co- on, I, I want to quibble with you on something. How how can it be one of the best games you've ever seen when it was so one-sided? If if that team wasn't wearing all black, if that team was in green or red, you wouldn't think it was. So actually, the person so I, was, I, put, I was watching the game with a, a friend of mine, and I turned around to him and I said, um, he he turned around because why are you cheering for England? And I was like. I'm not cheering for England. I was like, take the take the jerseys off, take the colours away from both teams now, and watch this game. The best team in the world are getting wiped out here, and you could see it from 20 minutes. And they were trying, like New Zealand got desperate 
in the first half. They were going for, uh, there was Hail Mary offloads and they're trying crazy stuff that it was, they, they went, we're going to win this. We're going to win a World Cup semi-final, a test match, which has never been won without hard structured rugby. We're going to win it playing super rugby. It was, it was tactically and strategically a huge mistake, but they didn't feel like they had anywhere else to go because uh, England had their number on, on so many levels. But like, I go back and we were wondering about what was wrong with Ireland um, back during the Six Nations and the whole Dev Toner thing and uh, the line. If your line-out is not... Like, these two line-outs were on just a different planet. Now, ironically, the be- next best line-out in the world is the Springboks. So this, this debate will continue. This would make it a really fascinating final. But England proved, I think, beyond or any doubt that they are the best team in the world. And the only reason why we doubted about them was because they made a mess against Scotland and Wales figured them out in the mm. second half in the Six Nations. But otherwise, besides those dips, this was it. This was confirmation. Jerry, what, what is the way to look at this then? Is it, is it that, that England produced a performance that few expected of them or, or that New Zealand came up shorter than we imagined? Well, it's always a bit of both, I suppose. And uh, the reason New Zealand came up a bit short um, was because they were rattled and because England did play so well. Um, most people out here, uh, including experienced um, members of the English media corps, and as, like I said, former players, struggled to, and even players like former English players, a part of that 2003 team, struggled to think of a better one-off performance. Um, they won in Wellington in 2003 when they were down to 13 men for time en route to winning the World Cup, at which point they were probably slightly over the precipice in truth. They'd beaten Ireland, I think it was 46-6, to clinch the uh, Grand Slam in March, earlier in 2003. They were great one-off performances. But as a one-off performance, this was certainly their best in the last four years and, and possibly their best of all time, possibly their best ever World Cup one-off performance. You're talking about beating the back-to-back champions in the semi-final of a World Cup. Um, and it was brilliant on so many levels and so and just sustained brilliance on so many levels. I mean, they dominated New Zealand in every facet of the game. They had a better scrum, better lineup, better maul better at the breakdown, better offensive game and infinitely better defensive game. And I think, yes, the All Blacks became rattled and yes, they were trading. Yes, they were forced to play from their own half an awful lot of the time because England's kicking game was also better and they were great in the air and they found grass in behind the wingers and they're just, their tactics were 100% spot on. They got everything right and it was brilliantly executed as well. So um, you have to bear, well, there's always an opposition. Mm. They, they can make a team play worse. And I think the All Blacks did force things. They did run down a lot of very tight, narrow blindside corridors. They got tackled to touch an awful lot, which is effectively a turnover. Um, they, I agree with Gabs to a point that they do. They certainly tried Hail Mary offloads. I think of several Rees picking off an intercept and then forcing an offload only to give the ball back and place them to trouble. But it, do, it did bail them out of jail and they made a couple of breakouts. And if you remember against South Africa, South Africa threw the kitchen sink at them for 20, 25 minutes as well and dominated them physically for 20, 25 minutes. And they were play, forcing their own half for a lot of that time. And then they just broke out playing high-risk rugby. That's what this team does. They, to get out of trouble, it's very brave. They play high-risk rugby. It just They were doing it at times when they shouldn't have been doing it. They, over, they overcooked, they overgilled the lily a bit. And it just didn't work for them. So I think they become a little bit hurried and they kicked the ball away a few times. And so it was a, 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 more than anything it was about English brilliance but to mm. a degree South Africa, New Zealand were off colour um, um, but that was forced on to a degree As soon as Sa- Sonny Bill Williams and Sam Sam came came on at half time which is mm. like we've got this wrong is it? Mm. and when Sonny Bill Williams came on you went 
oh, they never figured out their team. Because it was so obvious that he was their gain line man, you know what I mean? And like that spectacular offload he did. Might could be the last time you see him in an all-black jersey maybe, but they, they never figured out, this is all the things we said before the Ireland game, and Ireland just didn't fire a shot. But they never figured out what their back row was or what their midfield was. And you don't have a chance at a World Cup if you don't know what those two key areas are. Well, they did think, they thought they had the back row sussed with brilliant artist Surveya with Sam Kane. But then they changed it, obviously. Yeah, yeah. and it worked a charm until they decided maybe just become, they overthought it. The think tank overthought it and just became too clever. And uh, taking off um, Scott Barrett, actually did a couple of brilliant things in the loose. Chasing down Johnny May to save a try was one of them. Um, But yeah, but they definitely missed Kane hugely to break down. But then they became ill-disciplined as well. And one of Kane's first acts was to concede a three-pointer underneath his own posts. And then the final one, I think, was Sam Whitelock losing the head by jumping Owen Farrell. And he was immediately taken off because I think they conceded 11 penalties. They just became rattled. Farrell was Farrell was just on this whole new level for him. Could people be getting a bit of criticism for not being a twelve? He played like a strong, a hard man twelve as you'll ever see. Uh, and like the George Ford, whatever Eddie Jones has just tricked. He pulled the wool over everyone's eyes by saying it. It really is true. Your finishers and your starters are <laughs> are how rugby works now. Ford at ten was just. Just he was like close to perfection, and Farrell. You can go back through what Farrell did. The, the stuff that Farrell did, the niggly stuff and the hits, and like um, the, getting back on his feet. Jerry was right. One of the ones he, he bundled, um, bundled one of Artie Savia into got you, Jack got you, wasn't and it? I think Savia. Anyway, he put two of them in. Yeah. There's two times where he bundled yeah. players into touch, which just never happens mm. with a, a Kiwi coach team. You never, you always step in. Um, yeah, Farrell. Farrell deserves. A lot of credit for what he did, and he did. He wasn't kicking. You know, mm. he just played old school twelve like his dad was supposed to be when he came over to Union. He's their spiritual leader. He's their warrior. He's a he's a, a midfield warrior. You don't often see that in rugby, but he's their spiritual leader as well as their captain. Jerry, how much does this um, back up? We'll say Eddie Jones for the last few years, he's gotten plenty stick, like, but he it always he always seemed to claim in the background that he was building towards this, and nobody can really question him now, can they? Well, it was a bit of a high-risk strategy, really, wasn't it? It's for two and a half years I've been preparing for this one game. Judge me on the World Cup. Um, this is what he said. And had it gone pear-shaped, um, history probably wouldn't have judged him very kindly and he'd probably be out of a job after the World Cup. Now, um, he looks like a genius. He got it right for the biggest game they've had in two and a half years. Um, it was a tactical masterclass, all the reasons we've outlined. Um, there's been a lot of collateral damage along the way. An awful lot of staff have come and gone. It's A lot of players have come and gone. It's been quite a... It's been quite a brutal regime in, in many respects, but he's refreshed the defence by bringing in John Mitchell as recently as September 2018. And look how well that's worked. I think he's brought in Tom Curry and Sam Underhill. I think Curry was winning his 16th cap and Underhill his 14th. Like they're 21 and 23. Mm. Um, so four years ago, they wouldn't have been mapped. Even a year ago, they wouldn't have been mapped. Um, but remember Underhill wiping Sean O'Brien out, Jerry, in the Pro 12? I think yeah. it was three years ago when he was a teenager and he wiped Sean O'Brien out at the breakdown. He was playing mm-hmm. for the Ospreys because he almost slipped through the English system. So um, they have known about it. One thing, though, when England dipped spectacularly in 2018 and we walloped, Ireland walloped them and twicking them and all that, what was missing from the team? What was never on the pitch? Manu Tuolagi, Billy Vonapola. Mm. Not for not one second. He never had Tuolagi 
He, 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 one of his first press conferences three and a half years ago, he went, I'm going to build my team around Manu Tuilagi. And he never got a chance to do it. But didn't we say before the Twickenham game in the Six Nations this year that this was maybe only their second time playing together for yeah. England or something, something yeah. mad like that? And look at the first five minutes of the game on Saturday. Mm. Look what happened. It was Manu. Okay, we need to get game line really quickly. Manu Tuilagi, after thir- of a third phase, just crashed it up. Um, Billy Vonapola played the tram lines number eight like Kieran Reid used to do. He was, but yeah, but it was Tuilagi's try. It was all the, the the power game can only be set when you have these two guys, these two big giant Tongans uh, running the show for them. And there's a great thing. Can I just say the English rugby have been doing this brilliant media thing where their connection with the fans. You can actually go and watch a five minute YouTube clip on where Underhill came from or where the Tuilagi where Tuilagi came from, where the Vonapolis mm. came from, and how their dad played for Tong in the '99 World Cup. So he got to England. Mm. There's these lovely stories about each individual now. Um, it's a great example of how to use your social media channels. Jerry, uh, and the, there's one other thing on Tuilagi. He's like he's a dad now. He's been through injury hell in the last four years. He's got his body fit. He's more mature, um, and he's he's. he's He's actually quite an intelligent centre as well. Like I highlighted that intercept and the way he kept pushing up in the outside channels. It's, he's like a new signing for them. As well as the power game, he's actually brought a new level of maturity for him. He's just a godsend for them. Yeah, he's the he best. makes all the difference. He's the best in the world. The second semi-final, Jerry, couldn't have been uh, more different. It was, it was a, a, a grueler for most, most of the first hour. Yeah, it was. And uh, my wonderful Dell computer decided that would be would not be Wi-Fi enabled. Just a, just a kickoff. It went for me. I had colleagues try to fix it for me. I went down It's been on the, the way game. for a while. It's been sick for oh, a month, though, Jesus. hasn't it? I'm, uh, I, apparently, I could alone, it'll only be replaced if it's broken. Well, I'm tempted to just throw it onto the ground when I get home. Um, it, I got six Japanese technicians around it in the corner of a room. I got a BBC technician coming. I ran home to the office and got the technician on the phone to try and fix it. Eventually, after an hour, this big heavy guy, headset guy, Katsuki, he came back, he tapped me in the shoulder, he wanted one more go, and he went in, and he did about 25 things in rapid fire. We opened up boxes that I've never seen opened up in the computer before, turned the computer off, turned it back on, and it was working. Wi-Fi enabled again. And these six Japanese yeah, technicians did you, did you plug it in, did cheered you? so loudly that everybody else, <laughs> about 100 journalists, turned around the corner. Look what was going on as we're all high-fiving each other in the corner. Anyway, as for the match, I didn't... This feels like um, the, the perfect analogy for the match, Jerry. You know, the, that it, it was, was hard, hard work for an hour and then it opened up uh, just when we needed it. It was extraordinary because there was a brilliant, brilliant atmosphere right at the kickoff. Not a quite, not quite unlike the uh, the All Blacks Ireland game. This brilliant, brilliant atmosphere right at the kickoff. And whereas a torpor fell over the Irish squad, Irish supporters after about 15, 20 minutes. Here it only took about five or eight minutes. <laughs> like once the bombs started going up, it was just a question of keeping record of the number of kicks out of hand. There were eighty-one. 41 Jesus. by Wales, 40 by South Africa. It was... It's more than a gamma. <laughs> yeah, it was, I was actually thinking of looking at this actually would be perfect for Crow Park, this yeah. game, because the ball was in the air so much. Um, it was extraordinarily limited, tactical straight tackle approach by both teams. Wales actually got around them twice on the left-hand side to Josh Adams with Jonathan Davis' distribution. I felt so sorry for Wales. Like They're without Gareth Anscombe, they're without Toby Falatau. Um, they they lose um, Liam Williams the week of the match. That was then the one, wasn't it, Jerry? North. Liam Williams was oh, there was no way back no, after no, Liam Williams was there. No, because like, Davies wasn't took so fit much either. Away. Took so much away from their running game, their counter attacking game, and God knows they're going to get plenty of chances to counter attack, um, given how many of them Faf de Clerc and Andre Pollard kicked the ball. And then Andre Pollard actually 
takes the ball up, which he can do. He actually ran hard at the game line. And then he sits back in the pocket again as if he's going to take a drop goal. And Wales' line speed is so good that it forces him to run again. And hey, presto, what happens? They have an advantage play and Damien Delende scores a try. You wonder if they had just adopted a bit more of a running approach at times, would they've got through easier. Even then, Wales, the most spirited team in the competition, like with all these players, some players are from Pro 14 clubs that most Irish supporters couldn't pick up from a from a lineup. Um, came back, climbed their way back into the game, go for scrum, score a try, nail a touchline, converse or reach Passel. And I, there was a moment with about seven or eight minutes to go, I sit beside Murray Kinsley, Jesus, I think Wales are going to do this. And they had, just for three or four decisions going against them, the end they would have, including one where Nkosi, so Nkosi was actually on the touchline, the ball hit him, and it should have been a Welsh line-out just after they'd fallen behind, and that might have changed, it might have, <laughs> heaven forbid, we might have had 20 minutes of extra time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, ah, yeah, look, I think maybe South Africa might be keeping their powder dry a little bit, I mean, the 6-2 split and the 6-2 split back-to-back, um, it, it, you know, it's to ease the load in the tight five forwards with two replacement locks coming in and an entire new front row coming in. I think Razi Erasmus was conscious of the six-day turnaround, so not waste, expending too much energy. It was a game plan designed to beat Wales. Um, I think they might be, they might have a few little tricks um, up their sleeve for the final. I don't think that approach on its own, just scrum, maul, and aerial bombardment can beat um England, but their problem is their back play is just not very good. They're lacking an inventive, creative passer, um, and Willie Rue is not playing very well at all. But they will probably have Cheslin Colby back, and he's their X factor. Gavin, um, there was a quote from Erasmus today, actually, where maybe he's just trying to put us on the, the wrong foot himself. But what he said was, I'm not 100% sure if a World Cup final is going to be won by a very expansive game. Um, a game plan with wonderful tries. It might be, I might be wrong, but I think we'll go and grind it out. So it wouldn't be a surprise to see them turn up with the exact same tactics against England. Bombs and just tough it out. And like they basically only opened out their play when a penalty advantage was being given. It would be like Barcelona playing long balls or something like that. The, 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 <laughs> like look at the 95 World Cup Finals, 2007 World Cup Finals. Look at everything, box. The box always crash against the same thing. They might go with Francois Lowe after watching Curry and Underhill and going, okay, we need something at the breakdown because Lowe and Underhill actually wiped the floor with Van der Flyer and Levy in a European match there earlier on this year, uh, Bath Leinster. So does that. But um, no, they'll, they'll, they'll do exactly what they've always done. He's only had a year as well. So when he only had a year in Munster, like, you will see Springbok rugby go to a different level, but just not, not in the next week. The, um, they'll back on Malcolm Marks and Orgy Snyman to come in but Jerry's right again. Cheslin Colby's return is um, something that gives him a chance of ripping it up and tearing, tearing them apart. And Johnny May, not really sure if Johnny May's fit or not, so there's a bit, bit of an issue there. But essentially, it, yeah, I can't see it going. Any, England will get more, will create more opportunities. That's what I, that's what I'd say. We mm. can, we can, we can bet on that. Wales has only created, as Jerry said, two opportunities. England will create. They created four try scoring opportunities in the first half against the All Blacks they'll create at least that I'd say We will uh, dig into it in detail on Thursday so uh, for now that is plenty uh, Thank you very much Jerry. No bother You take care of yourself and we will, will chat, we'll chat to you Thursday and cheers to you Gavin See you later No worries You're listening to the Irish Times We'll finish off today with uh, some Premier League and some a kind of a mad situation that happened over the weekend, Pat, uh, when Arsenal were playing and Granit Xhaka seemed to be in a, a war with his own uh, fans. 
Yeah, it, as strange as it looked on the television, um, we have Amy Lawrence of The Athletic coming on to talk about it because she was actually in the stadium and her description of it is it's kind of shocking because it doesn't really come across on television exactly what happened with Xhaka and his contratome with the fans. <laughs> well, we will let her uh, enlighten us. Amy, thank you so much for coming on. Absolute pleasure. How are you doing? Fill us in on this. I, I, I must say, uh, I until I read uh, your piece in The Athletic yesterday, I wasn't... I wasn't fully aware that things had, had become so toxic there. So uh, give us uh, some of the background. Well, I mean, I've seen the word toxic sort of bandied around a mm. lot. And I think what's this was a, a sort of almost isolated incident in that it kind of really exploded. But there's been an underlying, mm. I suppose, a vulnerability or fragility about the sort of atmosphere at Arsenal, should we say, um, which, which does perhaps date back to maybe the last four or five years of Arsene Wenger's time mm. where the fan base did begin to change and kind of people battling with this sense of um, wanting to be ambitious and feeling apathetic and feeling cross and are you Wenger in and are you Wenger out? And it kind of created um, bad vibes, shall we say, uh, that occasionally you know, would, would cascade down and present quite a lot of pressure on the manager and indeed the players. And you always feel, I always feel with Arsenal, they're like a couple of bad results away from everything turning really iffy. And mm. I think that the start, this end of last season with Unai Emery was catastrophic, really, using, losing the Europa League final in, in Baku in kind of humiliating circumstances and throwing a really decent lead in the Premier League where they should have probably finished third and managed to bomb out so badly they couldn't even make top four. So... But because of you get the summer and it kind of they couldn't really direct that energy at anything, and suddenly they've signed Pepe and everybody's excited and there's new players coming in and kids are coming through and some of the rubbish is getting farmed out on loan and people felt excited. But again, it's that thing of things being not far from the surface. And Shaka has been a divisive character for a while now because people struggle to recognise I suppose the, the good things he does because the bad things he does are so glaring <laughs> you know he is a guy who has a, an absolute clangoring in, in him mm. uh, recklessness oh, you know, you're an experienced guy with a captain what are you doing shoving someone over and giving away a pointless free kick what are you doing chopping down a Tottenham player in the box when you're miles away from the ball and giving them a penalty and letting them equalise what are you doing yeah, he has got this aspect I mean, he's very high numbers-wise for giving away goals and mm. through individual errors and, and conceding penalties. And what that does is present this impression of, of, a, of a, 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 a sort of slightly loose cannon who can play really well for 95% of the game and then do something mental for the other sort of 5% that, that, that attracts, if you like, people's frustration. Anyway, I think uh, it was an emotional reaction by him. He was subbed. He's been made captain. That was complicated because in a normal world, your captain leaves and you appoint a new captain. But in Unai Emery's world, you spend two months faffing about and you get the players to take a vote. And then you tell the media that the players have taken a vote. And it's all a bit kind of embarrassing. In the meantime, Granite Jack is sort of being the captain, but not actually the captain. And I think got quite cheesed off with it all, really. And so all this stuff has... You know how it is when things aren't great and, and it's, it's a cumulative effect and then suddenly you go. I think that's what happened. And it, it, suddenly he went and sort of suddenly the fans went at, at the same time. Because in a way, while Xhaka bore the brunt and it's this incident you can analyse 
it being between him and the fans. I think a lot, in a lot of cases it was fans expressing their dis, disaffection with the way things are going under Unai Emery. They don't understand the football. They don't um, see an identity. Uh, they haven't really connected with the man. Um, and they worry that Arsenal are drifting into a bit of mediocrity when they do have a half-decent squad. And, of course, the natural question is maybe somebody else might be doing a better job with this situation. So it's all very mixed up emotionally. And basically, Xhaka, sorry if you want to ask another question, you know, went off very slowly. Fans started giving him some ironic cheers that he was substituted and it just turned in an instant and suddenly he reacted and then they, fans got angry and booed uh, and then, uh, you know, in a lot of cases. And it was a very, very unpleasant thing to witness. That was the part of it, though, that was slightly confusing watching. Did the fans start giving him abuse and did he slow walk to milk it or did he, no, was he slow think, walking off and did the fans start giving him abuse? What seemed to be happening is he was slow walking off and people are like, hang on, we've got to win this game. There's half an hour to go. You're the captain. Get off the pitch and let someone else come on. And so there was this sort of combination of people were, were beginning to get, uh, what started off as sort of ironic jeers, I would describe it as, because, and that was not everybody. That was a sort of, you know, scattering all, all around the ground, in fairness. You know, half of, half the crowd maybe are fed up with him and his number goes off. They don't think he should be playing. Arsenal's midfield's a mess and they, they, there is this reputation that part of the reason that it's a mess is because he his style of football is a bit ponderous and not quite creative enough and not really helping and he's being played as a sort of defensive midfield pivot. It doesn't really suit him in that situation on his own. Um there's usually so much space in Arsenal's midfield and it's like happy days for the opposition and he's getting it in the neck for that. People think it will be different if he doesn't play, rightly or wrongly. And so when he was substituted, I think the you know, a, a, a number of people are going, Ray! you know, in that kind of like, <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit humiliating really mm. if you're the captain that people seem to be happy that you get it going on. So he, the, he was then... I think stewing really is the word. So he didn't kind of run off. He was just in a in a in a uh, a funk, you know. He's human. It happens. He's been under massive pressure. He's a he's a bit scapegoated. Mm. Just had a, a a kid. His world is upside down, and I just think he you know, he's an and he is an emotional guy. So that was how he reacted. And then when he started to cup his ear and like come give it that kind of come on then and. And 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 uh, use a bit of language, uh, which incidentally was only a reflection of some of the language he was getting back, probably <laughs> times a thousand. So you know, I think you have to bear that in mind. Um, it, the whole thing just went went nasty really quickly on sort of behalf of everyone, and it sort of it almost transformed. It started as an ironic jeer, and it turned into sort of quite vociferous booing within the space of 10 seconds. And then he and then the other thing he did, which was in some, you know, everyone has their own levels of what is crossing the line and sort of tearing off the shirt and tossing the shirt on the floor. For some people, they were all right until then. And then they were just like, well, you just don't do that. Mm. Captain the club, throwing the, throwing the badge on the floor. No. Um, but, but some people would say, okay, you know, he's human. He's having a terrible time. And Lucas Torreira stood there on the side in tears. It's a, uh, you know, people were very emotional. When you're emotional, you don't react in a rational, reasoned, calm way. And I don't think anybody did. Everybody was all over the shop. There's VAR decisions, there's pressure. You know, the whole place was like 
it's like football hormonal sort of <laughs> explosion in a way. But it it goes back uh, exactly to what you were saying at the start. Like, you know, teams go through bad runs. Good teams go through bad runs. Um, Arsenal seem to have a, a an, an almost greater predilection over the last few years for exactly like that, being two and a half bad games away from Armageddon. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not massively healthy. Um, <laughs> and in many ways, Arsene Wenger had this sort of superhuman capacity to withstand it, you know. Um, and he was a very useful person to have at the club in the sense that he attracted all, all that negativity. So for the owners, for example, uh, or even mm. to an extent, you know, a lot of the players, it, you know, there was it was all sort of all on Arsene Wenger for that last two or three years. And and now that he's not there and leadership is not Unai Emery's greatest quality and, you know, explaining things with clarity is really not his greatest quality. And so there's a little, little bit more on the captain and the captain is Granite Xhaka. But is this and, not kind of um, pigeons going home to roost for Emery here? Because he, he didn't seem to understand that in England a lot of... Faith is actually placed in a captain. They we they they love more, more is made of it than it is maybe on the continent. The very fact that he, like he had a captain practically run out of the club, uh, Lauren Koscielny practically ran out of the club during the summer. Then uh, he didn't really he didn't stand up and say, okay, here who I'm picking, here here is the person who I want to lead this team. He left the players do it. He seemed to kind of almost wash his hands of the decision, and mm-hmm. he's kind of hung Jacka out really by failing to make this decision. I believe so. I think he hasn't helped Granite Xhaka at all. I mean, uh, the other thing that I think needs to be said about the the kind of the player vote is I don't think that that was the only factor. I think that was part of his decision making. Um, so you know, it is still Emery's decision. But I think if you you know if you're going for a job and you're you're already at the company and there's a promotion and you know you're kind of doing that job, but you, but they're not giving it to you for ages. How are you going to feel? Um, I don't think that uh, Unai Emery was particularly fair to Granit Xhaka in that period. And what it did do is it turned it into a thing. And once Mm. something becomes a thing, Mm. everybody's analysing it and everybody's got an opinion on it. And and it kind of created a pressure around Granit Xhaka being the captain that was very unnecessary. Because had he just given it to him in the summer, it's done. And you, you might not agree with the decision, but, you know, that's life. But... By kind of prevaricating, it created this this white noise around the topic that frankly became quite tiresome until finally, 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 he um, released the list of his five captains um, <laughs> in alphabetical order. Uh, or not quite, but, you know, you've got a real captain and you've got a vice captain, then the other three are just kind of there and sort of slightly... I, I do actually think there is a lot to be said for a leadership group. It's really sensible in a modern mm. dressing room and with the sheer amount of stuff that clubs and, and squads have to uh, have to manage amongst themselves. I think it's a good idea. But it is, it, you know, Liverpool has done brilliant by Jürgen Klopp at the moment. So, But I did think to myself there might have been a logic in giving it to Aubameyang who is always going to play mm. and uh, who everybody loves and has a great reputation for being a helpful guy that people look up to in the dressing room. And you can make Xhaka your club captain who goes around and collects the fines and tells people off for mm. using their phone when they shouldn't and is quite good at setting standards. That's one of the things he does very well. He wants people to 
you know, he let his own standards drop visibly the other day. But he's quite big on that compared to a lot of modern players. And that's one of the reasons why he was a popular choice within the group to be captain. As they do look up to him for those kind of elements. But um, but I think there's always a question if you pick someone as captain who, you you know, some people might think isn't or shouldn't be an automatic starter or an automatic finisher. You're just putting pressure on. Amy, I think, uh, listen to you, I think uh, Premier League clubs would be well advised to have you in. And if all <laughs> if all you ever said to them was be careful about making a thing into a thing, I think... <laughs> I think an awful lot of... The world would be an easier place. I mean, (laughs) it's quite simple, really. Just watch out for how many things you create that don't need to be a thing. What happens to Granit Xhaka now? God, that's a million-dollar question. Mm. I mean, I think it's been quite telling that, I mean, as we speak right now on Tuesday, nearly lunchtime, um, there's been radio silence with the exception of Hector Bellerin, who's the conscience of the team, um, making a really... Uh, eloquent and positive statement and Danny Ceballos sort of following a little while later but um, it's a, otherwise it's classic Arsenal radio silence which is uh, the way they tend to respond to a, a crisis mm. and I'm sure there's a lot of discussion going on behind the scenes and I fully expect them to make some form of statement they have a game uh, Wednesday night away at Liverpool and um, you know there's press conferences and things need to be discussed so if they've got any sense, they preempt a little bit of stuff. Because let's face it, if you leave Unai Emery with his communication skills as your sole um, conduit mm. for uh, the voice of the club, oof, um, with a with a complicated, deeply complicated, and emotionally charged situation, um, that's a big risk. Get out there and de-thing the thing before uh, before. <laughs> yeah, <Wednesday>. exactly. <laughs> Excellent. Amy, thank you so much for that. Absolute pleasure. Take care of yourself. Uh, you, thank you to Pat, uh, to you. How are you? Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you to Gav and Jerry, who we had earlier. Thank you to you, Declan, uh, behind the desk. And we will see everybody next week. Take it easy, folks. Added Time is supported by Fitbit. Get real-time insights on you and your world with the Fitbit Versa 2, the all-new premium smartwatch with Amazon Alexa built in, your personalised sleep score and a 5-plus day battery life.